Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to BYT Radio. My name is Brandon Weatherby. BYT Radio stands for Brightest Young Things Radio. Brightest Young Things is an arts and culture website based out of Washington, D.C. with a presence in New York and Chicago. We record this show every single Thursday at Full Service Radio in the beautiful Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan. Jack is the, uh, the guy that runs this station. He's actually back in the booth for the uh, first time in a while. I think we've done it's this show. been a show. while, yeah. We've been doing this show for almost two years now. Is that right? I guess so. And so time works. Wow. Whatever. Anyways, wow. Jack, where have you been? And I'll tell you where I've been. Uh, where have I been? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> and you've provided a salient answer. I forgot. I forgot you how forgot long it's where been. you've been. I don't know. New York? How was New York? New the York Big City. Apple. It's so good. Yep. <laughs> what were you doing in New York? Um, you know, I have a niece there. So That's nice. It's good to have nieces. My niece. Uh, you're going to be in L.A.? I will be next week. What yes. will you be doing in, in uh, Los Angeles? I will be doing a pop-up at the Line Hotel in L.A., Doing some interviews in the lobby there with some LA creatives. Anyone booked yet or no? Um, working on it, yeah. A lot of um, actually experimental musicians, which is cool. Fantastic. I'm about Jack that. will be going to the Big Apple next week, well, Los Angeles, California. <laughs> the Big Orange. Uh, this week on the show is someone that's a doctor. He's literally a doctor. Uh, I had a wonderful college professor that said, if, uh, if, if you are a doctor that kind of performs surgery, you're a body mechanic. But if you're the kind that uh, writes books and stuff like that, you're a real doctor. We have a real doctor on the show. He's a historian of the International Spy Museum. He's also a curator there, if that's correct. And he's the author of the newish book, Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Pilots. Plots, I apologize, left on the drawing board. Vince Houghton is here. Vince, how are you? Uh, good to be here, man. Thanks. Uh, so I've read your book. I've written about your book twice. And uh, one of the reasons why I like your book is because um, it, it, when people are walking by your book and you have the, the, the cover on it, it looks very hot. It looks like you are a conspiracy theorist. Now, your book is not a conspiracy theory book. No, no. All these are proven operations and missions and, and technologies that we can point to first, you know, person primary documents or other things that, you know, these aren't things people made up. These are things that actually almost happened. These are, so it's historical nonfiction Almost. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, most history books are written about things that happened. This is one of the first history books that's written about things that didn't happen. And there's a sense of humor in this book. It's not... Uh... You can't write about these stories seriously. I, I think that, you know, my, my tongue was firmly in my cheek the whole time I was writing. I, it's impossible. I would, I would not take anyone seriously who wrote about these things seriously. But would you take some of these plots seriously? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's certainly ones in here that... If they had gone through, things would have been pretty different today. Well, it's called Nuking the Moon for a reason. Yep. Um, but let's go through the book. I, there are three that stick out to me. Beside, there's two besides the moon one. Number one happens to be the first one, and it's cat. It's cat related. Now, um, do, yeah, could you please give us a summary of what I am referring to? Sure. This is a project known as Acoustic Kitty, and that was actually the real name of it. So someone at CIA has a sense of humor because sure. that was the official title, and this was an attempt to t- turn an average everyday house cat into a covert listening device. And by turn it into, I don't mean just kind of put a collar on it with a bug hanging from the collar. Sure. I mean, surgically implant a listening device inside a house cat so that, you know, we could put it near a Soviet embassy or somewhere like that. And it would 
walk in and no one would pay any attention because it's a stray cat or maybe even scratch it behind the ears and not realize that it was listening into the conversation. Now, this couldn't work out because cats are not like dogs or most other animals. You can't really train a cat. Right. I mean, so there's two different versions of Acoustic Kitty. Um, One is that the CIA gave up because they realized what we all know is that training a cat is near impossible. The second version actually is CIA overcomes this problem. And because this program was happening around the same time as another CIA project called MKUltra, and MKUltra, a lot of people have heard of it because it was a CIA mind control program dealing with hallucinogenic drugs like LSD and stuff like that. MKUltra was actually about 150 different programs, and only LSD was like one of them. Another one was using electronic brain stimulation to try to overcome instincts of animals, like the instinct of a cat to get hungry and walk off and search for food or lick their surgery stitches mm-hmm. because they think it's dirty. And the other story of Acoustic Kitty says that they were able to rewire the cat's brain to listen to commands and to the point where they were ready to do a field test of Acoustic Kitty. And that's where the field test uh, is where that version of the story goes horribly wrong. So I want to clarify. Maybe I don't need to clarify. None of these things came to fruition. No. And again, that's these are things that almost happened. Yes. Yeah. Here's where the Acoustic Kitty thing really bothers me. I have a cat. Uh, we, I have two cats. My wife and I have two cats. And one of the cats is attached to one of us and one of them is attached to the other. So that cat will like watch us sleep or follow us around. Was there a plan of just figuring out to place a bug in a, in a cat that had to go to the vet and a cat that already lived maybe in an embassy, maybe with someone that they wanted to follow, that would already have that loyalty that, rather than rewiring a brain? That would have made a ton of sense. And, you know, for whatever reason, you weren't around in the 1960s to let CIA know Yeah, that's the reason why it didn't happen. Yeah, that's the reason why it didn't happen. No, I mean, that that makes a ton of sense, too. And, you know, as a cat lover myself, I've had multiple cats. I still have a cat, Elwood, at home. Um, Elwood used to have a brother named Jake. And um, I just want you to know, Vince, I'm going to interrupt you now. I do a show called You, Me, Them, Everybody. Do you know where that name comes from? Do you want to tell everyone the premise of the hit, not hit film, The Blues Brothers? The premise? Uh, the premise. If you had to break it down. Two brothers, Jake and Elwood, are doing shenanigans and trying to make their way to... And there are three forces in their way. Do you want to name the three forces that are in their way? Oh, man. Um, You're kind of sort of related to one. I'm kind of sort of... Well, the... Um, well, I mean, there's the law enforcement. The law enforcement. That's, that's law how you're sort of kind of related. Okay. Law enforcement's number one. Um, I mean, they're trying to raise money for the orphanage that yes. they grew up with. Carrie Fisher as the nun. But, but also... Uh, oh, not Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher's, no, Carrie Fisher's girlfriend, the, girlfriend the girlfriend that tries to uh, explode him. Yeah, Carrie Fisher's the nun in another movie. And, yeah, I don't know. I get confused. Well, they have half, the ca- half a cigarette. It's a full tank of gas. The, and the Catholic and, Church. Yeah. The Catholic Church, law enforcement, and then finally... The white supremacist. There we go. Uh, of course. What's old is new again. The neo-Nazis. There we go. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Back to the cats. Anyway, I love cats, and so Good. writing this story is, is, was particularly vexing for the idea is that, you know, even in the story where the cat doesn't get run over by a cab, mm-hmm. which is, you know, give you the ending of that one, um, they do some pretty nasty things to animals. I mean... They try to explain it that this was in an operating suite and it was a veterinarian. It's not like the cat volunteered for this. Like, sure. You know. and, and I understand why people would get upset about that. And I'm not trying to rationalize it in any way. But like, unless you're a vegan that actually stands by it, it's like, back off, man. And this I'm is wearing actually, leather shoes right now. And the, the, the first section of the book is about animals. And this is the least bad thing that happens to animals of all the stories. I don't know cat. about that. The bat story, which is the other story I wanted to get to. I don't think that's in the animal section. There's it a, is. It is. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is during World War II. <laughs> yep. This is the story that will probably stick with me the longest because I think it could still work. Well, I know. I absolutely 
am convinced this could have ended the war. Let's talk about bats. Yeah, so there, there was a, an, a, a dentist of all people who was coming back from vacation in the southwest United States and on the radio, like rest of America, heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And his name was Lytle Adams. And Adams wasn't just a dentist. He was also an inventor. And he invented a bunch of stuff. And we'll talk about why that matters in a second. But he immediately had the idea. He just spent weeks looking at bat caves um, and said, oh, man, there's so many. There's hundreds of thousands of bats out here. Bats can carry a lot more than their actual weight. So what if we combined a bat with some kind of incendiary device? Because he knew a little bit about Japan. Uh, and he knew that Japan was mainly made up of buildings and houses of wood and paper. It's not like today where Tokyo is all you know, skyscrapers with cement and, and glass. The reason that there are skyscrapers, cement, and glass is Tokyo is because we burned all the other stuff to the yeah. ground. And he said, if we can combine a bat with an incendiary device and then drop them over Japan, they would do what bats do during the day. They would find a cold, draw, dark, dry place to hang out. And if that happened to be the attics or easements or nooks and crannies inside these wood and paper houses, when the incendiary device went off, which would be on a timer, it would burn Japan to the ground. Mm-hmm. And this is logic, right? This is kind of A plus B equals C. There's yeah. not a lot going on here. What got the attention of the government was that earlier, Adams had devised a way to help get mail from ships to shore faster. doesn't sound all that complicated, but it was enough that it got the attention of Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady of the United States. And so Adams actually gave a demonstration to Roosevelt, flew him, flew him, I uh, didn't mean to say that, flew her, uh, in his plane to like, demonstrate this. You can imagine today, like the first lady getting in a private plane with a pilot. But at the time, no one really took it all that seriously. Enough that she like thought he was a jolly old man. Apparently the description of Adams was that he looked like Santa Claus. Yeah. And she just loved the meeting him and talking to him and laughing with him. And so when he wrote a letter to the White House with his bat plan, it got into the hands of FDR. And FDR wasn't going to mess around with it, but he passed along to Bill Donovan, Bill Donovan, the head of the OSS, and Donovan looked at this and said, all right, this might work, but I don't want to deal with this either. And he passed it along to a guy that actually could do something about it, a guy named Vannevar Bush, who was the director of a, a government agency that probably should still exist but doesn't anymore, called the Office of Scientific Research and Development. This was the, he was the top scientist. Uh, quick States. aside, when did that get shut down? Well, right after the end of World War II, okay. right? So it was a wartime agency designed to take all of the research and development being done in the United States during the war and organize it together. Vannevar Bush was the kind of ultimate head of the Manhattan Project and everything else that was done. And so Bush looked at it and said, all right, this is enough, has enough potential that we're going to do some preliminary research into it. And what they discovered was around this same time, talking about fortuitous timing, a man uh, at Harvard University, a chemist, had developed what we now know as napalm. Mm -hmm. And napalm is very light. Uh, and very powerful. And it turned out that a particular type of bat, the Mexican free-tailed bat, could carry 18 grams of weight. And you can make a very effective 17.5-gram napalm bomb. Yeah. So one thing led to the other, and they decided to test this. And this is what we talked about, this idea it could still be used now, and I said I think it would work, is because the full-scale test they ran worked perfectly. They built a scale replica of a Japanese town out in the middle of the desert, and the bats flew to it and completely burned it to the ground, like just ashes left over. Now, this would have been a cause for celebration if the other half of the bats that were released hadn't flown to a working U.S. Army airfield and burned that to the ground, the barracks, the hangars, the, you know, the control towers and everything else. So they were 
the Army was pretty pissed off at Lytle Adams, but Adams knew he had something there. And that's when the Navy swooped in. The Navy probably laughed when the Army base got burned down, kind of chuckled, and said, we're going to fund this. We're going to put a lot of money into this. We're going to test it. And so they started rounding up bats. They started making a lot of napalm. And finally, they said, we need to up this to production level. We need hundreds of thousands of bats we can drop over Japan. And they went to the chief of naval operations, an admiral named Ernest King, and said, look, we've got this great plan we've been working on in New Mexico. Um, you know, we, we need to get a bunch of bats. And he said, well, all right, time out. I was following when you said New Mexico, but not the bat part. Because this sure. is in the summer of 1945 when yeah. they went to Ernest King. He's like, I thought you were going to mention some other scientific plan. What the bat guys didn't know is that the atomic bomb sure. basically had been built by this point. Yeah. And so they didn't get the funding they needed to up it all the way up to production level because we had a whole other way of using science to end the war. But Lytle Adams, to the day he died, and he died several decades later, swore that not only would his plan have ended the war, but it would have caused far less Japanese casualties. Because, you know, when some cities start burning, you can get out of the way and then you just, you know, you can't get out of the way of an atomic bomb, yeah. right? It's not something that you have any warning of. I'm not sure he's right. Um, because the firebombings of Tokyo and Dresden during the war, which were completely conventional, killed more people than the atomic bombs did because you start what's called a firestorm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he does have a point in the fact that it may have been cheaper. It may have caused less deaths. Not to bats, of course. We would have had to kill hundreds of thousands of bats in order to do this. But it was a pretty interesting plan. That's the first part of your book. Yeah. Um, I would like to say, I'm, I'm sure the animal part leads the book for a reason. That's like the fun stuff. Sure. And then it gets progressively scarier and sadder. Uh, two reasons. Number one, it's called Nuclear Moon for a reason. We'll get to that. But uh, climate change is a big part of this, specifically in Antarctica yep. and uh, what's going on right now. So uh, are you willing to speak about uh, the, the bases in Antarctica that were in theory planned to be there forever? <laughs> You got to go of. north instead of south. You went the wrong direction. I, I apologize. Yep. Yes. So this was a, a project called Iceworm, um, which was a, there was a cover for a cover program. So this is a covert action covering up for another covert action, and there was going to be a secret army base in Greenland under the Greenland ice sheet that was um, just secret enough that the Soviets would hear about it mm-hmm. and be like, "Oh, they're not fooling anybody. They've got this what's called Camp Century, where they were building a base using actually one of the first portable nuclear reactors to kind of keep this base moving." And this base was massive. Like underground, they built a movie theater and a bar and a church and everything else that you need. So here's what I want to know: Are there official uh, arm? Is this an army base? It's an army base. Are there official army projectionists, or does does like a handful of people? This is a serious you know question. No, you're right. There are. Like, and that's yeah. their job. The same yep. way they're like, you're a medic, you're a chef, yep. you're a projectionist. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, not anymore. Because uh, of DVDs and Blu-rays, well, and, and everything's been contracted out. I mean, even there. So there's like private projectionists that get flown in to show like old school reels. I mean, I, 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 when I was deployed to Bosnia in the '90s, we didn't even have army cooks. Like everything to that. By level. in the '90s. In the '90s, so army like we everything was was brought in by Kellogg Brown and Root, which is a subsidiary of Halliburton, and they were paid ridiculous amounts of money to feed us the whole time we were there. So a lot of things have been farmed out to contractors. Um, there are, you know, organizations that work the PXs and stuff now too that are also private that have the movie theaters and stuff on army bases. So it's it's not done by the military anymore. That's disappointing for some reason. A little bit. I mean, you know, things that used to be done kind of by you yeah. know the red-blooded American boys on, in wearing uniform are now contractors. Um, but it, it, which are still most likely red-blooded right. American boys. You know, just, well, maybe not. But yeah, it depends on where you're going. But 
The back I, to Greenland. Yeah, back to Greenland. So the idea was you, you'd, you'd hide this under the Greenland ice sheet. And the Soviets would get a word that there was some kind of secret base there, but they would assume it was for core research drilling and other things like that. What they didn't know, or what they weren't supposed to know, was that the plan was originally to build hundreds and hundreds of miles of underground or under ice tunnels where we could stash a good portion of our nuclear arsenal with the idea that, number one, they couldn't be hit because they'd be underground. Mm -hmm. Number two, they couldn't be found because you would build more tunnels than there would be nukes. So you never know which one it was going to pop out of. And this would be a really fast way to get to Moscow because it would just fly right over the Arctic Circle. Mm -hmm. What they didn't realize, at least the army didn't, meteorologists probably did, and people who are like kind of geologists, is that the Greenland ice sheet is not just a static ice sheet that doesn't move. It's constantly moving, just like glaciers are always moving and everything else. And so after a couple years, their great tunnels started collapsing because the ice sheet itself was moving along. And so they had to abandon the project even before they put nukes inside. They eventually went back and realized that they didn't even have their tunnels anymore at all. It wasn't just that they were crumbling, it's they'd gone. So they essentially said, all right, well, it's under this many hundreds of feet of ice. We're never going to see it again. So they just sealed it up, meaning they sealed all the radioactive material from the, from, the radi- from the nuclear reactor that was there. They sealed up all the human waste that was there, which is pretty nasty. And they sealed a lot of chemical waste down there. These are chemicals that were used back in the 1950s and 60s, things that today you would never find anywhere because they're full of carcinogenic material, but they were sealed forever, quote unquote. Well, turns out climate change has other ideas. And it looks as though within... It depends actually on how runaway the climate effect is. But in the next several decades, all this stuff is going to start coming back out again. Okay, so this is where the book takes a turn because now it's no longer like, this stuff almost happened. It's like, this stuff almost happened, and now there are consequences? Right, there are significant consequences, particularly with some of the chemical waste. Because the chemical waste is, is this really nasty stuff that's been proven to cause cancer in like every animal known to man. And that might actually come much earlier than everything else because... As some of the top ice melts, it starts washing down as water through these caverns, these small little openings, and it could wash away this chemical waste into the ocean. And that's not just going to kill a bunch of fish. It's going to wash down potentially into places where, you know, we, we count on having clean water, you know, whether it's places like, you know, the northern northeast United States where all the cod fisheries and all the other stuff. But also, a lot of ocean water ends up flowing into freshwater areas. And in theory, we could make these places, or not we can make, these places will be uninhabitable. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that you could have huge areas of dead space in the yeah. ocean where you just could not have But that any could also life. translate to land. Oh, sure. And that yeah. makes a refugee crisis even more Yeah, I mean, there's probable. a lot of things that are going to make things problematic. I mean, climate change itself is going to make the refugee crisis a thousand times yeah. worse. Because when you're churning arable land into desert. Uh, you're just going to run into situations where people need to move. I don't think we're at a point where we could possibly turn this into a straight fun episode anymore, but oh well, here we go. Let's yeah. keep trying. Um, let's, call, let's talk about the, uh, the reason why the book is called Nuking the Moon. Sure. Uh, before you d- do that, let me just uh, posit a, uh, what I read from it and my takeaway, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, why are we going to nuke the moon? Because why not? Am I crazy to think that that was sort of the reasoning behind some of it? You said that we, we could say whatever we wanted to. Yes. It's a little bit more than why not. It, it's, okay. it's a dick size contest. Okay, sure. With the Soviets. Right? Sure, this sure, is, sure. This is straight up like. But there know, was no like, 
And then what? It's like, because we can't. Right. It, no, it, it was to show off. Okay, it was good. Basically, we, in, this is in 1958 when this plan was kind of hatched. And it's a direct response to the launch in 1957 of Sputnik. Uh, Sputnik, the first artificial anything to go into space. It was a beach ball sized, you know, thing that went beep, beep, beep. It mm-hmm. wasn't exactly, you know, a modern digital film satellite. Sure. Um, but it went up to space on top of an ICBM, which could potentially hit the United States. And more importantly, I would argue, is that it demonstrated the Soviets hadn't just caught up to us in science and technology, but in some areas had surpassed us. And that's problematic. That's really problematic. Because the United States had always been the leader in science and technology while the Cold War had been going on, right? We built the atomic bomb. We built the first airplane. You know, everything from the Etch-a-Sketch machine to the kind of the first uh, pop, microwave popcorn was developed in the United States. The chocolate chip cookie, right? You know, we could just drop the mic on that, right? And all of a sudden, the Soviets had done something that we couldn't do. And so we needed something very quickly to demonstrate to the world that we were still the boss. And the idea was, all right, what can we do that everyone can see, at least everyone can see the moon at the same time, and something that is just so over the top that no one will question the prominence of American science. And the, the idea that came up with us, let's, let's set a multi-megaton thermonuclear warhead off on the surface of the moon. There's a lot of problems with this. Yes. Yeah. Um, number one, and then what they discovered, well, let me actually, this sounds like a plot hatched by some, this sounds like a bond, like right, early a bond, bond villain movie. or some captain at the base in the basement of the Pentagon wearing a tinfoil hat. Yeah. The scientists who work on this were some of the most prominent scientists of the 20th century. They, you may not know their names. Uh, the guy who ran the entire program, Leonard rifle was the deputy director of the Apollo program. Um, he also was somebody who worked under Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago. Um, he was somebody that later on, uh, you know, we kind of talk pop culture stuff, was brought in by Ukraine to deal with the Chernobyl disaster. And he invented the telos, um, the telestrator. So if you watch Chicago Bears football or Miami Dolphins football and, you know, someone wants to explain what Spider 2 Y banana is, mm-hmm. they draw it on the, that's Rifle's invention. So this guy was a pure polymath. He was the head of the program. And he brought on, he didn't real, he realized he didn't really understand geology well enough to do this. So he brought on a guy named Gerard Kuiper. And Kuiper may ring a bell to some people. There's something called the Kuiper Belt which is on the outskirts of Neptune. It's hundreds of thousands of comets and pieces of ice. And Kuiper knew his limitations also. At least he knew what he didn't want to do. And he didn't want to do a lot of math. Because these high-level scientists, they let other people do the math for them. And Kuiper brought with him a grad student uh, who was really good at math, a guy named Carl Sagan, who I assume people have heard that name. So these are heavyweight scientists working on this program. But they didn't realize that the Air Force didn't quite understand that there would not be this beautiful mushroom cloud on the moon. Because that was the idea, right? So every, everyone could see the stereotypical, I use the word beautiful, I, I think despite what it is. No, it is. It's certainly iconic, yes. right? Because the moon has no, no real atmosphere to speak of, right? You need, you need atmosphere to have a mushroom cloud. You actually need air not to get out of the way to kind of smush down the top of the cloud. And they said, no, it's just going to be dust going in a bunch of different directions. It's not going to be as pretty as you think it was. But the reason I think the plan never happens is if you've watched any documentaries about the early space program or the right stuff or anything, there's always a wonderful montage of rockets blowing up of before we actually put Alan Shepard into space, there were hundreds of rockets that blew up on the launch pad or flew up about 30 feet in the air and exploded or flew up 50 feet and turned around and then came right back down. Well, imagine a five megaton nuclear warhead on one of those. And that's the chance they didn't want to take. Yeah. 
No. This doesn't exist without Carl Sagan writing about it, right, sort of with a wink and a nod. Right. We wouldn't know about it. Well, we wouldn't know about it at all if Carl Sagan hadn't broken about 15 different yes. classification laws. But still, Carl Sagan gets yes. the credit on this one. Yeah. So Sagan, when he applied to um, a grant for a PhD program later on, in his, when you're writing a CV for grad school or anything at that level, you're going to include every single thing you did to make you sound good. And Sagan included two papers that he had worked on, both with very obvious titles, dealing with like the effect of nuclear explosions on the moon and other things. Now, the problem was Project A119 was very, very top secret. It was very classified. And Rifle didn't say anything at the time, but after Sagan died, a couple years later, after he wasn't going to kind of like spit on his grave, Rifle wrote an article and said... Carl Sagan broke a lot of laws yeah. when he applied for grad school <laughs> yeah. because he wrote about this program. That kind of what brought it out into the limelight. And at that point, the Air Force declassified the the kind of the program document, so we know a little bit more about it. So here's questions you could probably only give me a yes and no. Um, what did you want to? Are there p- stories that you wanted to include in the book because you but you couldn't because of classified reasons and just because you could know about it enough, unless you could prove it, you can't write about it. Yes. Okay. Great. Um, is there anything in the International Spy Museum that you really wish you could showcase if you had the clearance that you know about that you think the public would love? Oh, absolutely. Okay, great. This book is very fun for these reasons. You can read it out of order, which makes it very yeah, fun it's, and it's episodic. It's not designed to be read in I mean, you can read it in order if you want to. I read but, it in yeah. order, but I don't think you need to. Nah. Like, if you, for some reason, like only care about World War II, you can easily like knock that out. Let's get to today. Okay. Let's get to the sadness of today. Um, the International... Let's go backwards. The International Spy Museum, brand new building. Brand new building. We've been open for about two months now. Um, I That's mean, we're not a brand be, new institution. No. We've been around since 2002. Uh, yeah. There's a reason you've been around since 2002. It doesn't necessarily have to deal with 9-11, but let's be realistic here. Uh, you also are the host of the International Spy Museum podcast. comes out once a week, every Tuesday. It seems to me that anyone roughly my age, I'm 36... Got into what they're doing probably because of 9-11. It was a transitional moment for a lot of people in that generation, absolutely. How is that affecting what you do at the International Spine? It's, it's a huge effect. How um, so? Well, I, so the, the museum itself was conceived back in the 90s. And then, of course, it opens in 2002 because it takes years. Of course. We took five and a half years to build the current museum. Of course. But it's even more important today, and certainly after 9-11, because you can't take the front page of a major newspaper, whether it's... New York Times or the Miami Herald or the Chicago Tribune or anything else and not see a story that is somewhat related to intelligence work. And the public doesn't understand it. The public, I don't mean you, exact person listening out there right now. The royal you. Yes, the royal you doesn't understand uh, the intricacies of intelligence, right? Because there aren't classes on it, right? It's not like you go to school in most places and learn about intelligence work. So for most people, their entry point to the world of spying is pop culture. And that's problematic because most pop culture is god-awful. Um, and, and Quick aside, what's the best representation of spy culture the in six, pop culture? The six-hour Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness that everyone falls asleep watching. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. But everything else is garbage. I mean, I, 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 if you want to Google me, I spent years uh, reviewing the TV show Homeland for the Wall Street Journal. And basically what they wanted me to do is, for each episode, say what they got right and what they got wrong. And every foot up to the deadline, I was struggling to figure out what they got right. Because it was really easy to figure out what they got wrong. Yeah. And even in that case, they tried to make it look serious. But it's just bad. It's, it's, the problem is real intelligence work is, is not exciting. No. It's, just, it's slow. It's, it's something where 
an entire career, a 30, 40 year career, you may have one moment in your career that could be interesting in a movie. Uh, sort of a quick aside, how uh, realistic was The Americans? Decently realistic. Okay. So it's based on real life. It's based not a story from the 80s. It's based on a group of Russian spies who were arrested in 2010. There are 10 of them. Anna Chapman is the most famous, the mm-hmm. buxom redhead who ended up naked everywhere. And now she like basically is Oprah in Russia. Um, good for her. Yeah, good. She made a. She made. She turned lemons in the lemon flavored vodka. Did a great job with that. Do you drink limoncello? I do not. I don't drink it all anymore. Is that because you're not as cool as cool Russian spies? No, that's because my liver kind of. So told what you're me saying is yeah. you're not Russian. Yeah. Well, no. I I've spent some time over there. Are that you really? Could, and that certainly could have contributed to the, yeah. the the problems I have right now. But yeah, n- never get in a drinking contest with a Russian. You're gonna lose. Here's my. <laughs> This is a good spy question. I know we're completely off the map. We'll get back to it. Is it ever a good idea if you're a spy to get in a drinking contest? It depends on how well you know yourself. I mean, I think that's a position where, um, you know, well, the CIA did create certain pharmaceuticals which would prevent you from getting drunk. It's just bread. Well, not, you know, it's easier than that. It's certain pills that will basically kind of keep you to drinking and not getting drunk. Yeast. you could pretend. Is it that, just yeast? Yeah, there's like you know. I think that might still actually be classified. So, oh come on, it's know. yeast, everyone. I was a bartender. It's yeast and vitamin water. That's, It'll be cool. Yes, that keeps you from getting uh, hungover. hangover. Yeah. yeah, this is keeping you from getting drunk. Well, then what's the point? What are we doing here? Well, then you, you, just pretend. Yeah, just pretend. Anyways, um, have I, some near beer, have some Oduls or whatever. But the Americans based on a story. She was arrested in 2010. Americans based on a true story uh, of what we call illegals or mm-hmm. sleeper agents. Uh, they are still in the United States. They were in the United States back then as well. Um, th- what's interesting about some of the illegals that were arrested in 2010 is their kids had no idea they were Russian spies. Yes. Uh, they thought that they were just average everyday Americans living in New Jersey. What's not real about the Americans is that most sleepers don't do anything. Sure. If you're that deep undercover, why take the chance of you getting caught? Like you're living across the street from an FBI agent who does counterintelligence. You're just going to kind of sit there and barbecue, right? You're not going to try to assassinate the secretary. And that's where it's a TV show, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Okay. But does any part of you wonder how many people on the International Spy Museum staff might be sleeper agents? No, I I wonder that all the time. Do you really? I I, I suspect several are. How could you, could you, how do you vet for that? I mean, we, you know, we're. Like LinkedIn doesn't have that option. You know what? If they are, great. You know, we're a non governmental institution. We're not in a position where we have any secrets that I'm going to tell anybody. And so. that's the point. You just If they are, great. I think about this all the time. Who cares? Because at this point, being 2019, social media, blah, 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 what's actually secretive anymore? Well, but you make a good point, right? Something we call open source intelligence has now become insanely important. You know, to the point where CIA used to do it kind of as a, an aside. Like, let's see what we can get through open sources to kind of add to the the closed sources or the secret sources. Now there's an entire building at CIA that's fundamentally focused on open source intelligence. Because people will post just about anything on social media, uh, especially terrorists who are dumber than boxes of rocks in most cases, will post their location, will post where they're going to be, will post like where they trained, and that's wonderful intelligence. I mean, the story that just came out about the aging technology. The face app. Yeah, the face app. God, people, if you fell for that, don't do it again. Just like, I'm not going to make fun of you. I am in my head, but just don't do it again. It's an app. You don't know who made it. You're going to send your face and all your biometric data and everything we, to them. Number one, Russia yeah. made it. That's, yeah. not, that's been proven. Number two, they, 
in the in the terms of agreement, they like own everything in yep. perpetuity, which won't hold up. It doesn't matter. Uh, number three, the reason why it got super popular in DC. Do you know why? No. The Washington Capitals and the NHL posted the Alex Ovechkin like older one, and the fact that it Wonderful. was it yes. could not have been yes. better. Are you a Caps fan? No. Good call. Okay, back I'm from to- Miami. I'm a sadly I'm a Florida Panthers fan. That's kind of cool though. Like you're one of eight, right? You know what I mean? a, it's not hard to get tickets down That's there. That's so great. Go, yeah. Is it difficult to get any tickets for your team? I guess the Heat. The Heat, yeah, the yeah. Heat. The Dolphins are still okay. Yeah, but that's just football in general. Right. Unless you're the Redskins, no yeah, one. So. Which no, is kind of great. The Heat, the Heat go up and down. They have periods where it's impossible to get tickets, and then periods where it's not. When right. they're on the road or in Miami? In Miami. I mean, Miami. Really? Miami likes a winner. And I'm kind of surprised by that. And when teams are winning, yeah, they tend to go. Because like, even so, it's like your stadium looks kind of cool. It's right. It's perfect. Right on the exactly. water. It's gorgeous. And you always you had Dwayne Wade for all but like what one season when he was at the Bulls. Yeah. And that's it. And so like it was like a fun nostalgic Dwayne Wade season. The last one. And now you have Jimmy Butler. Yeah. No. You have a lot be, to look forward. They to. should be good. And they're trying to steal Wall and Beal from the Wizards. They're making. Do real you want thing. Wall though? Do you? Do you, you know kind of have to take? You got to take It'll Wall make if it you want. Worth Beal. watching. Yeah. It's worth watching. This guy in the booth. He's a Knicks fan. Damn straight. That's oh, that's fun. What do you think? It is. PJ Brown and Charlie Ward. Is James Dolan a spy? Dolan. Dolan. Is James Dolan a spy? I I don't know. If you wanted to destroy the New York Knicks as a franchise, I don't know what else you would do differently. So what you're saying is by being a New York Knicks fan, Jack is an unpatriotic American (laughs) unwillingly tearing down this great country. Send them back. Get out of here. Send go back to back. where you came from, which is Long Island. Yeah. He's it doesn't seem to matter anymore, right? You can say go back to where you came from to anybody at this oh, point. Oh, I'd love to go back where I came from yeah. once a week. That'd be great. Just travel <laughs> back and forth yeah. from Chicago to here. That'd be great. I'd love that. Yeah, Wizards tickets are okay. Those are It's an okay stadium. Yeah. They're cheap. Know. Yeah, they're cheapish. They're not as cheap as they should be. Well, the Caps need to be a couple of years separated from winning the Cup to actually go to a game now because yeah, you got to pay like three hundred dollars to sit in the nosebleeds, and I'm not going to do yeah. that. You know, it's much more affordable. The International Spy Museum. It is. Look at that plug. Much more affordable, and you can spend like eight hours there. We actually had a a guy come through who was doing a review of it, and they wanted to do everything, and it mm-hmm. took seven hours to go through the museum. That's too long. That's way too long. <laughs> but you're certainly going to get your money's worth if you come there. Be. Uh, do you want the visitor to the International Spy Museum to feel more educated, uh, or do you want them to, to realize that the world is both bigger and smaller at the same time? What's the goal from your perspective? My ultimate goal as an educator, which I am first and foremost, is that people are asking more questions when they walk out the door than they did when they walked in. Okay. Because a lot of times you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know what's out there. I mean, most people don't have the foundational knowledge to understand how complex this is. Why isn't that true? Because you're absolutely right. There aren't counterintelligence classes. There no. aren't spy I mean, there, classes. There are very few colleges now that actually are offering intelligence as a degree, but they just started in the last 10 years. And so every other museum you go to, let's say the Natural History Museum, you learn about dinosaurs as a sure. kid. You learn about rocks and shit as a kid. U.S. History, that's something we've taken. But you walked into the spy museum, maybe all you've seen are Bond and Bourne movies. Yeah. You don't really understand the complexity of collection and analysis and dissemination and covert action and all these other things. And so we can provide at least that introductory introductory framework so that if you really want to know more, you at least know what to build upon. Do you, remember, did you ever have like a library sciences type of class in grade school or high school mm. where they like sort of check? Did you have one of those where they like teach you how like how to use the card catalog and how to do research and here's yes. LexisNexis yes. and all that yes. stuff? The Dewey Decimal exactly. System. Exactly. I feel like now 
that's just as important as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Just knowing how to do basic research would be more useful to a spy than like doing parkour. Well, I mean, a lot of it comes down to, you know, especially analysts, right? And the analysts who are kind of, they collections people, so the spies in the field or even satellites or other things, they collect information, they mm-hmm. collect data. Analysts are what turn it into intelligence. So the analysts are the ones that are kind of the nerdy guys, like the ones that kind of sit around with the PhDs and take in the raw data and figure out what the hell it means. You don't have intelligence without analysts. And yeah, a lot of it comes down to the ability to do really good research. Um, and most of them do, right? If you've got a doctorate, really what a doctorate does is, yes, it says you're an expert, but really what it does is it blesses you off saying you're an expert researcher, right? You know your way around an archive. You can do research. So this is you explaining a question, but actually just bragging about your credentials. Well, yes, because I have, I mean, I have a master's too, if you really want oh, to bring that one up, right? So You went to school. Yes. <laughs> It's good for you. Yes. It's I a compliment. spent half my life doing that. Yeah. Sounds like a huge insult. Uh, do you feel more or less hopeful because of your job? It depends on the day. Okay. It really does. I mean, there, there are days where it's just pessimistic, Nick, where you're like, oh, God. Like, we can't, number one, we can't get out of our own ways in some cases. But number two. Um, but you're also a historian. Right. Because of that, could you look back in the past and it was like, we can't get out of our own ways, but at least we got this far? Well, context helps a lot, right? Because every time everyone says, like, this is the most divided we've ever been, I'm like, uh, the Civil War? Yeah, we had slaves for a long time. Right, and we fought each other, a yeah, war, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, or this is, you know, this is the most corrupt president we've ever had. I'm like, well. We had well, slaves. Yeah, I mean, well, the whole, this is the most racist one. I'm like, well, slaves, we had slaves. slaves, right? We had slaves. I mean, the founders, right? The people we adore and we revere were slaveholders, right? So they're not, you know, it's important to have some kind of historical mm-hmm. context. That being said, there are a lot of ways that we can kill ourselves now that didn't exist before. Well, um, let's rank them. Number one. Nuclear weapons. Okay, that's actually so, a very salient point. Thank you so much. So, there, there, you know, I, I talk about existential threats in the book, yeah. right? And I, I say we, we kind of overuse that phrase. You, you saw that in a lot of the presidential debates where, like, I think Michelle Bachman said 20 times that Iran was an existential threat. She has no idea what she's talking about. The existential threat literally means a threat to our existence. There are only three, I think, right now. U.S., China, Russia? Well, the Russian nuclear weapons arsenal. Chinese don't have enough to really cause real issues. But let's say nuclear weapons. Okay. Climate change. Okay. Which I will, you know, I don't care what political spectrum are. I will yell at you till I'm blue in the face because it's... You know, D.C. went 92% not Trump, right? Well, I know I'm in a happy place here, right? Uh, But I have relatives in Texas and Florida and others. Um, and, And people who, you know, just think more about money than about kind sure. of their kids. Well, here's the thing. Let's take that back. Sooner or later, it will make more financial sense to be on that side. It already does. Complete financial sense. I, I, if you look at the kind of trillions of dollars in the green jobs and other things. Anyway, but yes. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm trying to stay positive here. No, no, I understand what you're saying. Like, I mean, Florida's already figuring this out. Florida's a super-duper Republican state, certainly from the governmental side. Mm-hmm the Florida State House and Senate and the governor, and they're like, eh, we may start paying attention to this yeah. because Miami's going to be underwater. It kind of already is. And the third thing is ourselves. I know that's really metaphysical and kind of big picture. And this is almost where you could say 9-11 was an existential threat and Al-Qaeda was because of what we did to ourselves yeah. afterwards. Patriot Act, because of Abu Ghraib, because of things like the Enhanced Interrogation Program and other things where if bin Laden and crew wanted to change America... Congratulations, you win. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that to me is something that I even talk about this in the conclusion. I, I try not to make it serious, but the conclusion kind of lays down like, look, 
you know, the response to 9-11 and the fact that only only 3,000 people were killed, I understand that sounds weird saying that, but a nuclear exchange with the Russians would kill millions and millions yeah. and millions. What would we do if there's a major attack that's bigger than 9-11? Yeah. Are we going to s- stop being the country that we are? And kind of see the hints at that already, even without a major attack and yeah. kind of going against our true beliefs. And, and again, the founders are spinning in the, I, I don't give a shit about the founders. I, I'm not one that reveres them. Good party. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the people that the, the ideals that founded this country are, are very much threatened right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The new spy museum. Happy, is- happy, joy, joy. <laughs> it's so much fun. Um, yeah. No, where's the new spy museum? The new what's spy the address? museum. Uh, it's 700 Lanfont Plaza, right? It's hard to miss. We're surrounded by these ugly as government buildings that were all built in the 60s using that brutalist architecture the FBI building is. Here's my biggest problem with your museum. You could, when you're on the highway or whatever, there's that giant spy museum thing and then really uh, unfunny people make the joke of like, shouldn't the spy museum be hidden? That's it. Yeah, no. We had a a 10-minute conversation about making it in a completely undescript building that you wouldn't know. You'd have to like find it but then we're like, no, then no, that's, no one would that's come. a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> you did like, the then, right thing. Yeah, then no one would come. So yeah, no, we, we you know, we're here to to tell the public and to educate the public about what happens in this world. British Young Things uh, has a party at the Spy Museum coming up in a few weeks. Go to that. Uh, this Tuesday, we're doing a book swap. I will not be uh, swapping uh, Vince's Nuking the Moon because I will probably keep this and uh, recommend it to other people. But you can get like-minded books. You could find Nuking the Moon in anywhere Everywhere. books are sold. Yep. Uh, people should follow you. But yeah, follow on Twitter at, at Intel Historian. That's uh, which a great is pretty one. Easy to, I, I, somehow I got one. it. I, there aren't a lot of us, so yeah. How many are how many Intel historians are there? There's a handful of about forty. Um, we have, is it mostly male? They, there's a it's starting the younger cadre now is becoming more and more women as That's women good. get more involved in national security, which okay. is starting to happen. Thank God. Do you guys get along, or is it like really? No, we all know how nerdy we are, so we do get along. Okay, we, it's kind of if we don't or get along you know with how, ourselves, or you know how nerdy you are, and you keep trying to one up each other. With well, like, did you know? There's happy one upping. Actually, a lot of the stories from this book came from people kind of like, "Have you heard the story of X?" And it's like, "No, no, that's great." Oh, by the way, there is a pretty large footnote section in this book to like, so he's not just fibbing the whole time. No, well, the point I tried to make is I, I only included things that you could either from your public library or from your couch on the online mm-hmm. learn more about this stuff. Now, there were primary source documents that I pulled out of an archive, but I didn't include those, right? So if you want to know more about each of these stories, I have a bunch of resources there where you can kind of tackle them a little deeper than I have them. Uh, and the podcast could be available where we listen to podcasts. It comes out every Tuesday. It's been around for a long, long time. Yeah, so SpyCast has been around for a while. We've done almost almost. 500 episodes or something to that effect. Um, everything from former and even current directors of agencies down to spooks on the ground and everything in between. Spooks on the ground sounds like it's a slur, but it's not. No. No. Spooks on the ground, that's the bread and butter of intelligence operations. And then uh, what's the worst representation of spying that's the most fun to watch? I mean, the Bond movies by far. Okay. I mean, that there's, we, we know them really well. We work very closely. You with had the, do you used to have a Bond exhibit. We used to have a Bond exhibit. One of our uh, one of our honorary board members is one, the guy who wrote the last eight Bond movies. Um, we, you know, we know that group well. Um, we appreciate it, right? Because it's just fun. Yeah. But it's really not. There's if you're jumping out of a perfectly good airplane with a cocktail in one hand and stupidly named blonde in the other, you're getting fired. I mean, that's you're 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 just not going to have you're a job. Too cool. Well, that's no, just. I mean, I, I did a thing for Vanity Fair again. I mean, watch me name drop all the stuff I've done in public, where they asked me about the one of the Mission Impossible movies. It's the one where he hangs from the side sure. of the plane. 
they're like, is that real? I'm like, that's, that's something you would get you fired at CIA. But it's technically real because it happened well, in right, the movie. But, but in real life, if you did that as a CIA officer, you would get a pink slip because they spent millions of dollars training you and you're going to do something so reckless. Yeah. Then you're on your way. What are your thoughts on Scientology? Go. Uh, uh, cool religion. Uh, Fitch, uh, what's his name? Um, Fitzcavage or whatever. Their their leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, is in my top five worst people on planet. Let's rank them. Number one. Uh, uh, Lapierre from the NRA. Oh, okay. I like that one. That's really good. Number two. Uh, Vladimir Putin. Putin. Oh, solid. Number three. That guy. Fitzcat. Whatever his name is. Okay. Number four. Um. Ooh, now you're getting into trouble with me. Um. The guy from Indonesia. No, Philippines. The Philippines. Number Duarte. And number five with a bullet. Um, my former boss. I won't even name him out. Seriously? Yeah, he was a dickhead. At the spy museum? Or no, 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 place? no, no, no. This is back, back in my old life. That's awesome. Yeah. You're one of the few people that would go along with that. I have absolutely. Thank you. Scientology. You know, whether or not they think that they're legit, I think that anyone who takes advantage of people, um, who. See, that's why I put Jenny McCarthy way higher than Scientology. So, yeah, the anti-vaxxers. There's just yeah, like I think the, anti-vaxxers are way more dangerous because they're not... Because Scientology, you kind of have to have money to really be hurt. Yeah, I mean, the people like Gwyneth Paltrow, too, with the whole Goop movement. But you got to have a lot of money for that, too. Like, yeah, the Goop movement so doesn't expensive. bother me as much because it's like, if you can afford an $18 shake, cool. Yeah, anyone who's anti-science, I think, is problematic. Um, yeah, I would agree. I mean, some of the anti-vaxxers are really, really problematic. Yeah, I think, seeing, yeah so that's why Jenny McCarthy, Jenny McCarthy, to me, represents that group. She has some redeeming value, though. No, she doesn't. Because she's from Chicago. Her cousin's Melissa McCarthy. I'll just hang out with Melissa McCarthy. I don't need that other side of the McCarthy family. Jenny McCarthy has literally caused thousands upon children to die. Are they literally cousins? Yeah, they're cousins. That's interesting genetics. Isn't that cool? How that happened. Chicago, baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank, you're fun to chat with. Yeah. I'm way more interesting than any of your guests on your stupid spy podcast because they're all serious and talking about saving the world. And I'm like, fuck Jenny McCarthy over here. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm a cool fella. Uh, Nuking the Moon is a great book. I really enjoy it. Uh, go to BrightestYoungThings.com to pick up tickets for our spy museum party. It's coming up on Friday, August 9th. You will be there. Yeah, I'll be recording a live podcast. That's actually, awesome. The- Who's, do you know the guest is? Yeah, it's going to be a former NSA and CIA hacker. That's awesome. Who is now doing a lot of open source stuff. Yep. And finally, if uh, people should share this and all their information on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and be completely sincere. Say again? Nothing. Never mind. Yeah, no, no. Don't do that. Uh, Don't don't, don't do that. (laughs) We'll be back next week. Uh, Jack, play us out with something. You'll be in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful night.